Welcome to The Water Table, the podcast that floats slowly, spreads widely, and sinks deeply into conversations about the human relationship with land, water, and community. I'm your host, Pete Deneen. Our guest today is Brock Dolman. Brock is the founder and co-director of the Water Institute, the Permaculture Design Program, and the Wildlands Program at the Occidental Arts and Ecology Center in Sonoma County, California. Brock teaches and consults on regenerative project design and implementation all over the world, across North America, the Caribbean region, South America, Africa, and widely in the United States. He's been featured as a TEDx speaker and in award-winning films, including Leonardo DiCaprio's The 11th Hour. Brock is a graduate of UC Santa Cruz and is an appointed commissioner on the Sonoma County Fish and Wildlife Commission. Brock, welcome to The Water Table. Hi, Peter. Thank you for having me on The Water Table podcast. I don't know how familiar you are with the idea of this water toolkit, but it's something that we at the Land Resilience Partnership have embraced as a sort of metaphorical toolbox of physical and conceptual tools for people to use to increase their water resilience. Like one of my favorites, for example, is rainwater harvesting. I'd like for you to talk a bit about what your water toolbox looks like, what your toolkit looks like, and about rainwater harvesting in particular. I guess when I'm thinking about the metaphor of a toolkit, I'm really interested in, well, what am I trying to build? And so I really think like a watershed, and I want to understand how the hydrologic cycle works in a watershed, where the quantity and quality comes from, what type of water, snow, fog, rain, how does it move through the system, who needs it, the environment, humans, how is it apportioned, when does it show up? And then if we've got a goal of, say, increasing water supply at your home, what's the opportunity to interact with the water cycle and the, quote, water budget? If I'm looking for an income stream into my water budget, then I might look at my roof as one opportunity of one tool in my toolkit to increase the water supply, which means I could see my roof as an above ground well. And then I might figure out how big that roof is and what kind of material it is, which is a water quality concern, and think about, well, if I get an inch of rain on basically a thousand square feet, I get more or less 600 gallons of water. Could be pretty high quality stuff, but I need to store it. So I'm gonna have to find a place to put it in a tank or two, lots of kinds of tanks. That's a whole piece of this equation, the anatomy, if you will, of this, this toolkit. And then there's other things around filtration, water quality, pressurization. Um, that I want, and what I want to use it for. Do I want the water for outdoor irrigation plants? Do I want it for indoor? Is it potable grade? So I, I, I really need to figure out in that case of say roof water harvesting, which is then a sub tool within the bigger kit of rainwater harvesting, where that may also include other tools in the toolkit. I love the image of your roof as an above ground well. Another thing you said that felt to me like a really useful way of thinking is the idea that rainwater falling on your rooftop is a physical income stream into your conceptual water budget. So rainwater harvesting seems great. Like why wouldn't everyone do this everywhere all the time? I mean, is there a time or a location that it maybe would be inappropriate to harvest rainwater? Well, I think again, on the specific tool of roof water, um, I, I think that when you put in an impervious surface, say like a roof of some building, interestingly, you've increased the runoff coefficient, the amount of runoff that's in that landscape because you have this impervious surface called a roof, or it could be a driveway or something. 
So interestingly, uh, it's almost responsible to take advantage of the increase in pervious surfaces from the roof and put a storage tank there as a shock absorber to mitigate the deleterious effect of having put the roof in the watershed to begin with, because likely before you did that, it might have been a part of a watershed where there was natural vegetation or native soils and the runoff might not have left the watershed so quickly and had the capacity to carry sediment and other pollutants with it. Mm. So I think generally in a, in a decentralized or distributed scenario, maybe a rural residential scenario, an agricultural operation, that kind of stuff, roof water may often be a really effective tool. But again, there's in contrast to what other supplies of water do you have? Are you is it in lieu of taking water from the stream that might otherwise affect the flows and affect the fish? And so that's a benefit to use the roof water. Or is it from groundwater? Is that a shallow well? Is that groundwater supply uh, intact? Is it stable? Or are you digging really deep and, and pulling from water that's really old? And so by going to newer water up higher in the system, you're tapped more into the annual water budget versus mining old water that you also have to probably use a bunch of electricity for that has a whole other bunch of embedded water energy nexus costs. So I think it's, there's never, I'm not sure there's a right and wrong, but as a systems thinker, as a permaculture designer, I really want to analyze, well, what do we have say in the watershed and our on-site resources. And then what do we want? What's, what does success look like? What visioning? And then it may be that a diversified portfolio of investments with water conservation, low flow everything, uh, maybe going to compost toilet so I don't need water there, harvesting some off my roof to supply, augment supply, whatever I use in the house as best as possible, like the laundry or the shower goes into gray water. So now I get two gallons of water for the one gallon with respect to the use and the benefit of the water. So I'm, you know, kind of really thinking about, again, in, in any toolkit, you got a hammer and a screwdriver and a wrench and a, you know, you got a bunch of tools in the toolkit and they all collectively build something. And so I think that's the same way we think about toolkits is we've got multiple tools that achieve what, what does success look like? For me, it looks like a resilient watershed ecosystem whereby the quantity and quality of water in that system and the human use of it is taken in appropriate measure and not polluted. And there's plenty for the environmental uses of the vegetation or the in-stream flows for the fish and the beavers and whoever else is in that system. So that's really how do we manage the budget by optimizing income and expenses, which ultimately is really about storage and savings and living within the part of the water budget that's more on the annual income side, the liquid assets versus mining, say, deep in for, say, groundwater that's really old and, and that's non-renewable at a rate that you're living in place. So it's kind of a, a different, it's a, yeah, it's a systems approach. You mentioned a number of these tools and how they sort of fit into this toolkit, but it seems like the idea of a water budget kind of ties them together. Can you talk about what a water budget is and how we might calculate that at maybe a household level or larger at a watershed scale? Sure. You know, I mean, I think the idea of a water budget is, you know, it's a conceptual tool in this case, part of the toolkit. It's a conceptual idea of um, like a, a budget relating to money, for instance, where you've got some amount of money coming in on your income side and you've got some expense side. And ideally you're trying to balance that budget even better, maybe you'd like the budget to uh, accumulate <laughs> some savings, right? So you don't right. go in the quote red on your budget, you go in the quote in the black, or maybe in this case in the blue. So I want my budget to run in the blue, meaning through my 
say my home in the, in the watershed, can through my settlement of where I live in the home and all the water I need to, for my daily life indoors, bathing, cooking, washing, this sorts of stuff, and all the water needs I need outdoors, landscape, food production, um, can I meet those water desires, those needs, those demands with the income that falls on the property that is there within the, within the boundary of, say, my private parcel, my lot, my home, the landscape. How much rain, snow, fog do I get at what time of year? Is there a way that I could strategically by design harvest, rainwater harvesting, sequestering, storing that water in such a way that I could actually meet all of the demand side needs of my water budget so that I have a balanced budget that isn't detracting from the overall water budget and See, I, I think hydrologic, when you don't have a balanced water budget, then you end up running what we call hydrologic bankruptcy. And when you're, the creek that used to run perennial and had perennial salmon in it is now runs dry three months out of the year because the extraction of water in the watershed, either through tapping too much groundwater, tapping too much surface water, or too much impervious surface on the landscape of roads and roofs and plowed ag fields and drainage structures so that it runs off when the rainfall comes really fast and flashy, but you didn't slow it, spread it, sink it, store it, share it. So now there's no subsurface water that can leak into the creek and sustain the flows. And so we're running a hydrologic deficit. And um, in economic terms, there's this idea of, of chapter 11 filing bankruptcy, which is a interesting uh theoretical idea and a conceptual idea in the human space, but yeah. hydrologic bankruptcy in a watershed, <laughs> when your well runs dry, you know the worth of water, as Benjamin Franklin would say, when the creek runs dry, um, when the farm has no water during drought, and it's because of hydro illiterate, bad water design of human landscape, whether it's in the forestry space, the rangeland, the agriculture, rural, urban, suburban, human uh, uh, settlement pattern. So how can we, human settlement pattern uh, be done in a way that is actually rehydrative yeah. and restorative versus dehydrative and degradative? Yeah. And that's a really a different path. You walk down the scarcity path, whether you're scared in the city and fighting for every scrap of water, or do you go down the abundance path where there's plenty of water, we just have to manage it better by having a better set of tools in the toolkit yes. that we use to build a better watershed, if you will, that functions more holistically. I want to go down the abundance path. I mean, what are some of the stumbling blocks to implementing this integrated approach of all these different tools and applying them in a water budget? Like, what are the holdups? Is, is this an education awareness piece? Is it difficult to implement these things? What's stopping us from doing more of this? Yeah. Well, I think, so speaking about California, maybe specifically, and considering we're localizing California, uh, Waters Conference here at Evergreen Lodge, in lovely Yosemite. Um, there's there's the centralized world of water where we in California have significant state and federal dams and aqueducts and big plumbing systems and municipal scale systems, and we pipe water to people in pipe sheds, and then they do things in it, and then they make it go away in wastewater systems. So that's a whole set of issues where you may be living in a city and how you understand and voice your opinion and participate in the democracy of your water budget 
when you've got a centralized system, there are, there are plenty of opportunities to interface there. Mm. But I think some folks may feel like they don't have as much access to participate. Then there's the uh, unincorporated parts of any state, but California, um, the non-municipal system, the distributed, the decentralized folks, the folks or the farms that are basically out on their own and they have to supply their own water with what they have available to them on that land, whether it's surface water from the sky or in a creek or in a spring or in the ground or all of the above, um, or, or a rural residential homescape. And so I think each of those scales from centralized scale to decentralized scale has a set of problems and a set of opportunities. And it's really trying to understand how that works. And I think one of the situations in California is and everywhere, water, there's quantity of water and there's quality of water. And water quality is protected through various Clean Water Act issues at the federal and state level. And then there's water quantity, which is about water rights and how much water do you get to use for what beneficial use, what purpose, and when do you get to use it? And do I have a right to the surface water? And how does that relate to groundwater? So there's a water rights structure, and that can be in some areas. A, an, the current water rights structure is there. It's a first-in-time, first-in-right kind of a structure. And uh, it can present some impediments to people who are trying to figure out how to do more of an integrated water management strategy by harvesting water when we get it in a Mediterranean climate or in the Sierra snowmelt system in abundance and storing it so that we have it in our dry months. But that may be running contrary to an appropriative water right where you're not allowed to store it for more than 30 days without a certain right and getting hold of that right. Um, so there's there, and yet the water rights law has a bunch of opportunities to also begin to work with. And there's a number of organizations and groups we work with that have found creative strategies to honor the water rights structure and yet also come up ways to supply water for both the families or farmers and keep it in the creek for fish. If I'm a homeowner in suburban California and I want to take some of these tools from my toolkit and apply them, where would I start to look into to engage with my own system? Where would I begin? How do I, where do I begin to do that? Yeah, I think if, I think if you're a, a suburban homeowner and, you've, and you're connected to a city system, then you probably get a water bill. And what's really interesting is that you can look at that water bill and in the summer, assuming, depending on how much landscape you have, you're, you're going to be using more water. Uh, in California, it depends between south and north and east and west. It could run roughly annually 50% of your water budget, the amount of water you use will often be used for outdoor irrigation. Um, and the way you can really tell that is by the winter water bill, assuming we're getting a winter and there's rainfall and, you're, and, you're, and you've turned off your irrigation system, the, what you're paying for in January likely represents just what you use inside the house. So you can get the water bill and then you can kind of go, huh, how many toilets do I have and how many gallons per flush do they use? How many shower heads do I have and how many gallons per minute do they use? What kind of washer do I have? Is it an upright? Is it a front loader? How many gallons does it use? So you do a water audit. Like if we're talking water budgets, many ways that people try to understand budgets is, is that they audit the budget. So you do a water audit and you try to quantify all of your water uses inside and outside. And then you look for the low hanging fruit around efficiency and conservation and uh, appliance retrofit if it's affordable. And in many cases in cities, they have you know various uh, subsidies and and 
programs that help people improve the efficiency. So you could say to yourself, on behalf of the larger watershed where my city gets the water from in San Francisco, I would like to honor the Tuolumne River watershed and the Hetch Hetchy system by using less water in San Francisco as one contribution to a larger system. So yeah. I'm going to low flow everything I can in my house. I'm going to try to use as little amount of water as I can. And then you get to go out of the house. And if you have a yard, look outside and look for another a, a set of efficiencies outside as well. Exactly. If you are spending all of your income and exhausting your savings, you're going to take a look at your finances and figure out where you're hemorrhaging money and where you can tighten it up. So if that's happening with water, and for many Californians it is, where do you start? You start with an audit of your finances, audit your water budget. You know, one of the things I write about is plastic waste. And last year, 2019, I did a year without plastic and it started off with a plastic audit. I didn't change my use. I just documented all of my plastic waste for a month to see where I can make, you know, some easy cuts. But what you just said has inspired me to do an accounting of my water footprint. I'm going to document my water footprint and not just the bill showing my use from the utilities, but I want to know the products I use and the embedded water in those products and the virtual water in the food that I consume that is coming perhaps from another watershed. So all your low flow talk leads us into another tool, which is gray water. Let's talk about how the water that goes down the drain can be integrated into our toolkit and factored into your water budget. Yeah. So in California, we there's there's black water, which is from your kitchen sink and it's from your toilet, assuming you've got your bodily waste in there. So that is black water and, and legal in California has to go to a on-site wastewater system or a centralized your sewer plant. But what's cool is then there's these other kinds of waters we call gray water. And so, yeah, your bathroom sink or your shower, for instance, th that water that drains out of those drains, we call gray water and it's got soaps and things in it. And there's a couple types of gray water systems, but in that case, there's no pressure behind that water. So we're going to need a series of plumbing, a, a, a series of drains that are shaped like a branching tree branch that allow us to capture that drainage water from the shower and bathroom sink, and then ultimately distribute it in the landscape in a really cool excavated little pit that we're going to fill with wood chips and a couple other little plumbing details and disperse that water into what we call a mulch basin. And those wood chips absorb that water and the soaps and all of that. And then all the creepy crawlies and the worms and the bugs and the fungus and the bacteria eat up all that nutrient. And we get this beautiful nutrient freed up irrigation water and we plant plants around there and we have this really cool irrigation system and maybe those plants are edible plants. And um, the other gray water system that's really accessible and legal throughout California for homeowners to install without a permit is what is called laundry to landscape. And so again, you can take your washer, top loader uses more water generally, 30 to 40 gallons, front loader uses 12 to 20 depending, but we can again, design a simple system. And, and thankfully, both of these systems, the branch drain and the laundry landscape, there are lots of, you know, installers and YouTube videos and gray water book resources. They're really easy to do. They're DIY friendly. And if you don't want to do that, you can find someone to help you. Um, and so we can use that laundry to landscape water. And it's a separate kind of gray water, if you will, and it requires a separate kind of plumbing system. So you have sort of two basic ways you're going to move that indoor water. But 
Yeah, every gallon of water you use when you shower, that entire gallon becomes now a gallon of irrigation. So I asked for a gallon from the city or my system, but I got two gallons of benefit. So technically I just turned a dollar into $2. I just doubled my budget. I just doubled my money. Like that's a great ROI, a return on investment by integrating reuse. I've got a low flow system, which means I'm demanding less upfront. And every bit I did demand goes right back into my system. And I got a second use out of it. And I grew an apple tree. Woo, who's, what's not to love with that, right? Yeah, and the multi-benefits from that tree the food producing, the shade. Carbon, the water, the habitat, the food, the beauty, the pollinators. And that's what we love is when you get into integrated, holistic, ecological design, you start working as a systems thinker. And all of a sudden, the, the whole of a gray water system is greater than the sum of the gray water. It's this idea in ecology called an emergent property. The whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Mm. And so, yeah, you're saving water, you're reusing water, you're creating a new space in the landscape that creates biodiversity and fecundity, and it's growing food for you and food for the planet and holding water and, and sequestering carbon. And all of a sudden now you start looking at life budgets beyond just the water, the carbon budget, the life budget, the beauty budget, and what's not to love. It's it's um, yeah. So that's what integrated holistic design where one output of one system is an input to the next system. It's a connected relationship and there is no waste in the system. Just waste equals food for the next part of the system versus it going away. Where's away? Is it thrown away on a finite planet? There's no away. Waste is, a, is, a, is, a, um, is an indictment of bad design, basically. Waste is an indictment of bad design. I'm writing that one down. But like this is obviously not happening at the scale or pace that it needs to be happening at, right? Like when you talk to city officials or urban planners, what are the obstacles to achieving this kind of thing at a community level? Yeah. Well, I think thankfully we have basically in California water law, there is ultimately a a prohibition against wasteful use of water. And so all waters that are being used legally are supposed to be being used for beneficial uses. Potable water is a beneficial use, irrigation, agriculture, and there's a number of them. So in the case of, say, the big cities, they ultimately, especially during drought times, um, they're as they're trying to grow, possibly as they're trying to add new infrastructure, new buildings, new golf courses, lawns, parks, whatever it is that the city uses, Finding new water sources, we pretty much have dammed up all the good dam sites. I'm not sure there are good dam sites, but yeah. all of the big dam sites that some people thought were good have been pretty much used in the state. And so getting a new, getting new water supply, going out and just damming up another dam or putting in another groundwater well, most of the big cities, most of the cities around have kind of used that up. So we're not really making any new water on the supply side in a traditional sense, um, a centralized water storage sense. And yet demand keeps going up. So the only way with declining supply and increasing demand, you're gonna make up the difference is by tightening up the ship. It's hardening the demand through conservation and reuse. So the cities have lots of incentive to support their, their uh, customers in, in using less water, using it more efficiently, reusing it, What's interesting as well is that when you flush your water away in the toilet or take a shower or wash dishes or do laundry, you're going to have a centralized wastewater treatment plant. 
And the other side of the issue is that many of these treatment plants, they're really expensive to manage, to maintain. They're aging out in many cases, and they're underbuilt. And there's significant issues with uh, waste pollution of rivers and oceans and bays and things from uh, failing wastewater treatment plants and septic systems. And so, and there's laws against that. So many of these cities are also struggling with having to come into compliance with the Clean Water Act and the violator of that may be their wastewater plant. So if you use that gallon of water for your shower and then use gravity to irrigate a fruit tree in your yard, instead of pumping that gallon to the treatment plant, you both got two gallons of benefit on your property. You only paid for one gallon and you didn't even send a gallon to the wastewater treatment plant. So you took pressure off of them and you're supporting the city. So on both sides of the income and and the supply and demand side, you see that the broader municipal cityscape has a significant need to invest in supporting its customer base and being as efficient and and effective as it can be and using that water. And then the question is, is what as water saved, what does that water get allocated for? Does it just, is it a growth inducement to induce more growth? Is it some of it saved for the environment? Is there an opportunity to retain some of those perceived savings to allow more water to go downstream for the fish? Is there a balance there? So it's a, the city's got a bigger water budget with more line items to balance if you on their budget than say what you are with your home. But it's an all hands on deck moment. And everybody who's part of that municipal system has a chance to be a part of the solution and helping that system be as effective, as efficient, and as integrated in the system. And that's just the supply into the house and the wastewater disposal out. Then there's the fun part about the rain that falls right onto your home. And that was where we were talking about with the rainwater harvesting, roof water into tanks, or rainwater on your landscape, which then becomes what we refer to as stormwater. And in many of these cities as well, that stormwater that runs off the roof, if there's no tank or the driveway or the sidewalk or your landscape, if it's not spongy, right into the streets and right into the gutters. And depending on where your city's at and if there's floodplains or not, that stormwater may end up backing up in the storm drains, carrying pollutants off of the landscape, polluting your lake, your river, the bay, the ocean, um, or it's, it might even be combined with the um, wastewater system. Like San Francisco, for instance, has combined sewer stormwater. And when it really rains in the city and you flush your toilet, both those waters go to the same place and it can't handle it oftentimes and they have significant failures that end up polluting surface water. So then we get to look at our roof and say, wow, I caught a thousand gallons off my roof. That's a thousand gallons of during a rain period that didn't go down the street, that didn't maybe make things worse downstream. So I, and I get to use that thousand gallons a few months later, which means I don't need a thousand gallons from the watershed that supplied it. So now I got a double bang for the buck. Then I could look at my yard and go, what if I reshaped the land and reworked the topography and made little basins and little berms and little rain gardens and little depressed areas at the downspouts of the gutters or where my roof water tank is full and it spills over and I can slow that water down and spread it out and sink it and actually enhance groundwater recharge in my local area or run it through a biofilter of carbon and wood chips and plants and filter it and clean it. And I'm irrigating a space and then I can plant native plants or edible multifunctional food forest plants. And my entire yard becomes a living rainwater harvesting edible sponge that also slows the flow and keeps the water out of the street drains and reduces flooding downstream. 
And I could design my house to basically possibly live within the rainfall that falls on the house, catching it all off the roof, reusing it, eating from the yard, groundwater recharge, compost toilet didn't need water, gray water on site. Woo, imagine that, right? So now we talk about independence and freedom, which is really the ability to be part of a system where you're actually part of the solution. You mentioned briefly the gravity component of having water run out to the yard. You know, California is a massive state with a water system that defies the natural watersheds and pumps water hundreds of miles over mountains to get to its users. The relationship between water and energy is a huge thing that I think a lot of people are just maybe sort of unaware of, especially in California's centralized water system. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, it's uh, some, yeah, so this water energy nexus, some people shorten it to this term called water G. Um, and it's exactly that. When you look at, again, say on the supply side, how does water get to you? And whether it's in the city or on your own home with a well, for instance, or some sort of pump in the creek, generally they're electrified. And so how many kilowatt hours of electricity does it take to pump a gallon to get it to you? And what is what made that electricity? A coal plant, a nuke plant, a natural gas plant, big hydro, solar, wind farm. I mean, what is the energy portfolio on the front end that runs that electric pump? And what are the greenhouse gas emissions and the impact from your electric supply that is now pumping water to you? And so, and then once you make it wastewater, there's another pump that's pumping it away. So now all of a sudden I could have caught it off my roof with gravity, stored it in a tank, depending on the slope. And maybe I could have a gravity system or a very uh, efficient little pump to pressurize my system. Then once I take a shower with it, it goes back out to landscape with gravity. And so I could have zero or very little watts of energy in per gallon and not need that externalized energy source and not be asking the city to have to build a new power plant outside because I'm using more water. So the whenever effect, gravity has, gravity is gravity and water, well, they say water flows uphill to money, but that's a bit of a different conundrum. Um, you know, you working with gravity is, uh, requires that you're really elegant and you're really smart and you're humble and you work with the systems. And there's amazing gravity fed systems that, again, depending on the topography of where you are, if you're on the flat bottom lands of a floodplain, that's going to be really different than if you're a hill slope person. And so it's not uniformly applicable, but we have so many tools about how to reduce our energy demand through water conservation. That's the fun part is water conservation is energy conservation. And so let's say it's about mm, in the high mid 20%, maybe uppers of 30%, depending of electricity used in the state of California is used to pump water, pumping it over the hill to get it to LA from the Tatchby's, pumping it to pressurize your tank, pumping it to the wastewater treatment plant, pumping it through filters to clean it, pumping it into sprinklers to make it go away. So every gallon that you don't need to pump and you can use on site or not use at all. If you say, I'm not gonna use that water and I'm gonna cut, I'm just gonna stop using water. I get to save the water and the energy and the cost of processing it right off the get. So choose not to use whenever possible. And then whatever you do use, you reuse and try to use it in as most efficient way as possible. Right. Um, and then the other nexus in the water energy nexus is over on the hot water side. And how do you heat water? 
Do you heat it with electricity? Do you heat it with natural gas? Do you heat it with propane? Or we live in California, which is a sunny state. Different parts of the state have more sun than others. <laughs> and we have a lot of really efficient ways to use solar thermal energy in solar thermal hot water panels of different types. So we could be heating the water. So instead of natural gas, it's somewhere in the range of, again, the mid 30s to mid 40% of natural gas usage in California is used just to heat water. And where do we get natural gas? We're getting it from fracking. We're getting it from other, you know, uh, petroleum-based, you know, fossil fuel based on sustainable destructive practices. So imagine now I've got, I've got a roof water harvesting system with a low voltage DC pump that uh, gets water that's heated through a thermosiphon off of my roof and I take a hot shower and then that shower water goes through gravity back out there and I get to eat an apple tree off my gray water system. Woohoo! Right now we're right. talking about what we call regenerative hedonism, where the virtuous cycles start kicking in, and you can see this relationship. and And then you're part of a system, and you feel connected to it, and you can see that you're a, becoming part of a solution. And that's for your home. And then you get to be a demonstration, and you get to be a spokesperson, and you get to say, "Hey!" And instead of being on a soapbox telling people they should do something, you can say come to my house in my experience when I did, this is what happened. And people believe a real world story where you're actually speaking from first person experience. And then it's like, well, maybe our neighborhood could do that. Maybe our city could do that, which then gets into community organizing, gets into outreach and education. It gets into working with your local water district or the water supply or the city council or the board of supervisors or the state water board or the Fed. So we have a democracy that has multiple layers of governance and decision-making. And we as citizens can do more than just vote. It's a, uh, putting in a roof water tank, putting in a gray water system, uh, putting in a solar thermal hot water system, putting in stormwater, rainwater, harvesting um, edible food forests. Each of those is a vote. It's a vote for a positive future. It's a vote for an integrated future. It's a vote for a, a future of connecting with life and supporting the abundance of life. So vote in lots of ways, not just with your wallet or with your wallet and your ballot. Brock, a lot of people ask me my opinion about desalinization. Do you think that desal has any place in an integrated water toolkit at all? Is there some place for it or maybe not in this context? Yeah, so desalinization basically as the word would be is how we're, how we're trying to take the salt out of water, meaning the source of water we're interacting with is a salt water or a brackish water, a briny water, estuarine type water. Um, and the, uh, so one of the ways that I, in answering a question like that, I, as a systems thinker, again, I, I have to say to myself, okay, well, what would be the, what does the system look like if I am in a situation where my only potential source of water because I've increased the demand. Maybe I've overbuilt that area beyond the, the natural water budget of the place of the freshwaters. And I still think I have to supply new water and I'm looking out at the ocean or maybe some brackish water and in inland areas. And I'm thinking, well, geez, why don't I just get that and then filter it, run it through a series of processing filters that are very expensive. Um, literally to the pocketbook and energetically. Um, so a reverse osmosis, a series of desalinization filters that ultimately ends up in reverse osmosis, producing a salt-free potable water um, is the amount of energy, the electricity it takes to run that system is very expensive 
to your pocketbook and to the planet because of all the infrastructure it takes to create that desal plant with a really big hookup to whatever the electrical supplier is. And then all the salty stuff, all that brine, this hyper brine, quote, waste that you filtered out. What do you do with that? Um, there are some creative solutions to that, but a lot of it gets re-discharged back out to the receiving water body and creates these hyper saline areas that can affect life out there. So uh, I, I believe in desalinization and I believe it, it's nuclear powered. I just want one nuke plant and I want it 93 million miles away. It's called the sun. Yeah. And the sun shines down on the planet. It's about 100 watts of energy per square meter per day on average. And it desalinates the ocean, the saline ocean, and distills and makes pure, clean, distilled water that floats up as vapor into clouds and then comes back down on the land as rain or fog or snow, depending. And that's actually a solar distillation process that's been running the water cycle on the planet for about 4.2 billion years. And every terrestrial life form is dependent on solar desal from a nuke plant turning hydrogen into helium 93 million miles away. So I would prefer to invest in that desal, solar desal, natural desal, and live within the water budget of the watershed or this property as much as we can. There are a few communities in the coast of California that are have some desal or talking about more desal. Everyone who looks at that portfolio on the, on the economic side sees it. It's the most expensive water per gallon or per acre foot in their portfolio. It's really expensive water to the planet and to the pocketbook. Um, where do we see desal on the planet? Middle East. We see a lot of it in countries. So countries are pumping oil, digging out, pumping fossil fuels from the ground, toxic stuff, combusting them venting off greenhouse gases of sorts, CO2s or methanes, if they're natural gas, heating water to make steam, to make electricity so they can use electricity to pump salt water so they can basically build out a big city in the desert. Oh, I, I couldn't even tell you at how many turns that is a, what we could permaculture would call stacking dysfunctions <laughs> system. Yeah. It's a it's, not, it's a very short-sighted and highly toxic system that's not going to last long. And so I don't, I, I'm not going to say never, say never, but desal is, is really low, low, low on my, uh, in my toolkit of options. I mean, there's also a difference between the large centralized desal versus the smaller decentralized brackish solar stills. Sure. There's some really cool solar stills out there and some of them, depending on the size, you can get, you know, half a gallon a day, a quart a day, a couple, you know, so some, there are, there are some folks who are playing around with that and that may be functional for a, a small subset of a few DIY type folks who are really game on with that. Uh, the cities on the coast, Carlsbad, for instance, that are promoting this thing. I don't see a whole bunch of backyards sure. pumping yeah. ocean water into a little solar still in the backyard and, and, you know, drinking the water that drips off the little that thing out the bottom end of it. Um, maybe, I mean, it's fun. You know, in California, we have a resource that I don't see being used a whole lot in fog, which comes in on a regular basis. Do you see more potential for fog harvesting in that sort of a system, specifically on the coast where you get that marine influence? Yeah, again, what's really cool is that, you know, California, we've got, we've got rainfalls, liquid, we've got snowfall as solid, and then we get fog, which is kind of a vapor liquid hybrid, depending. <laughs> And um, in the coastal zone, the, the species that we should all 
acknowledge and recognize and actually astutely look at its current distribution if we want to value and honor fog would be our coast redwood. Basically, the coast red, redwood, Sequoia sempervirens, um, the tallest tree on the planet, its distribution at this point is entirely dictated and dependent upon the coastal fog cycle because it's a fog water harvesting tree that's evolved through time, through glacial cycles that have come and gone, the only place that still exists on the planet, there's fossil redwoods in Yellowstone and Mongolia, um, is along the coast. And it's because it's got a certain, it differentiates its needle shape at the top and, and the mid part of the tree so that it can condense fog and drip it down into the ground and on a ridgeline in West Sonoma County, right near us in Occidental, there was a study done by Dr. Todd Dawson, a UC Berkeley professor with a bunch of students of his. And they basically quantified that we, on that ridge in the wintertime, they might get 60 or 70 inches of rainfall. And then we get a six, seven month Mediterranean drought. And, but yet we get this fog cycle and dripping down from these old growth redwoods on the ridge, they were picking up an additional 10, 12, 15 inches of precipitation that dripped from the tree in the middle of, of your hot summer dry system. Global average rainfall is around 15 inches. So they already got 70 in the winter. Now they're picking up another 15, let's say in an average scene. But what they then discovered is in the tops of the needles up in the redwood, if people know about trees, they have little uh, cells on the undersides of trees called stomata that can open and close for gas exchange and such. But they found a whole other kind of pore, a little, little opening up there that's not a stomata. And it actually can take water in and let water out. And what they discovered, which tries to help solve the mystery of the tallest tree in, on the planet, how does it get water from its roots underground and pump it up through passive uh, solar power up the vascular system, three, 400 feet up the trunk to the top of its head. Engineers and folks doing physics can't figure this out. It's a, it's a miracle, right? Well, what it turns out is that while they can do that pumping, they, in addition, appear to about 30% of the water that they evapotranspire, sweat out in the daytime, can recondense on itself up there and be taken back in at nighttime. So they, they have a 30% bump in the water budget up in their top canopy, in addition to the 15 inches they dripped out during the day. So that's 30% above the 15. And so fog water, the uh, evolution of fog water harvesting, especially in coastal California, is deeply ingrained in our coastal coniferous forests and the Pacific Northwest rainforest. Um, humans then exploiting that, uh, yeah, I don't think in Sonoma County, so the way fog water harvesting strategically happens, and if you go to there's communities on the coast of Baja and the coast of Mexico, Peru, areas that have cold water oceans and upwelling and then desert areas, and so you get a really hot, cold condensation space, is they put up various poles, big vertical poles, and then you put some cables from the top top of each pole and the bottom of each pole that you can then strap um, shade cloth, basically. And there's different shade densities. I think 60%, 70% shade is one, is beginning what people are starting to see as a condensation substrate. And then below there, you have a pipe that is 
opens like a gutter, like an eaves trough that's tilted on one side. And as fog blows through that shade cloth, it condenses on that mesh, that screen, and drips out, flows down the little eaves trough into a tank waiting below that's up on the ridge. And then you get gravity pressure to your fishing village in Mexico or in in Peru. There's a beer company in Peru that's making all the water they use for making beer is fog water harvested beer. So um, those places are super special. They're unique. The total yield of water relative to the infrastructure, it's not lots of water, but you can live in, live in a desert, but you're not going to be watering big lawns, but you won't die of thirst. Um, so moving some of the coastal ridges in Sonoma County over to a fog water infrastructure, it's probably going to be expensive for the poles, the cables, the mesh, for the gallon you get out of it. Um, if you're homesteading on a small spot and you're really tight with your water and for potable, you probably could figure it out for those strategic months of the summertime when it's otherwise really dry. It might be an interesting tool in the toolbox. I think it's a specialized tool that only a few folks get to use in the toolbox. Right. Fog water harvesting is going to depend completely upon where you are, right? If you don't have fog in your region, then it's not going to do anything for you. So I think that's often the the understanding is really location, 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 really understanding where you are, what watershed do you live in? What is the portfolio of the water supply in that system? How much of it comes as solid, if any? How much of it comes as liquid rain, if any? How much comes as fog? When does it come? What's the average? What's the highs and lows? What's the season? And then composing with that natural water cycle versus imposing upon by just plopping in your settlement, punching a hole in the ground or damming up the nearest river, blocking the fish, and then putting a bunch of electricity in the system and pumping that water and then imposing a whole artificial subsidized landscape that's basically on a, on a drip tube, like an IV drip bag, keeping you alive while you're basically killing the surrounding system so that you've got this neat and tidy little artificially imposed landscape. Um, so that's imposition versus composition. There's hubris versus humility. Um, I, I think I'm, I'm on the side of composing with in a stance of humility that works with systems and tries to live in harmony with the balance of the incoming uh, water supply. Thus, back to our earlier point about the water budget. Can we live within the natural hydrology of a site and have a balanced budget versus getting into an importation uh, interbasin transfer, going hundreds and hundreds of miles away to dam up Shasta or the Feather, the Tuolumne, the McCallumne, the American, all of our rivers on the western side of the Sierra Nevada or the east side, the whole classic Mono Lake and Owens Valley scenario or the Colorado River. And when you look at California, it's one of the most hydrologically modified and manipulated places on the planet. And to keep this experiment alive, the tendrils of the water supply reach deep into the Southwest and how the Colorado works and the east side of the Sierra and all the snow melt and all the river drainages and groundwater. And, and that, you know, from the 30s, 40s, 50s on up till a couple decades ago, we did that. But um, as we saw recently on... Um, the, one of the slides that uh, Eric showed from Department of Water Resources, Oroville was the last big dam we built back in the 60s, and population has doubled since then. And so 
balancing water demand with growth and efficiency is a really big conundrum for society overall. And so what do general plans look like? What do urban water management plans and urban growth plans look like? Increasingly in climate change, climate chaos, a climate emergency, global weirding, where now the hydrologic cycle is more avaricious and maybe you get an atmospheric river as a Hail Mary and it saves you, but it might flood things out and Oroville Dam spillway might go away, or you get five years of no water coming in and snowpack goes to barely anything. We have to figure out how to create more resilient systems that live within their means and aren't dependent on what appears to be statistically uh, the last many decades or hundred year been a uh, um, uh, unstatistically wet period of time, if you will. And it appears that we're increasingly, yeah, things are just getting different and, and less uh, predictable, if we will. And it's maybe not ever even been predictable in the Mediterranean system. Brock, I would love to hear you talk about something. I know that you are passionate about beavers, which were widespread in California before Europeans arrived, something like 200 million of them. During the 19th century, the beaver was nearly eradicated through habitat loss, hunting and trapping for fur, deliberate extermination. By 1940, there were just 1,300 of them left. But just a few years ago, up on the Tuolumne River, a fish observation weir counted nearly 1,000 beaver passings through the observation tunnel in a single year. In Ojai, which is one of the locations where our work is focused, a mural just went up downtown on one of the main streets depicting beavers as a keystone species to the revival of Matilaha Creek, a main tributary in the Ventura River watershed, which is no longer part of the range of the beaver in California. What do you see as a potential for beavers as a tool to help manage our watersheds? Yeah, beavers, the North American beaver, Castor canadensis, super cool rodent. Um, they only breed once a year. They got a couple little kits. Um, they're vegetarian. They don't eat fish. And many people know them that they, in certain situations, lake edges, certain kinds of rivers, they can chop down trees because they eat the bark and then they use all the trunks and the limbs that they didn't eat. And they are amazing at building these things called beaver dams that can say cross a river and begin to flow, slow that river down and make a pool or a pond and slow that flow down and create a wetland along there and rehydrate the land and actually infiltrate more water so that it grows more forest, more riparian forest, that streamside forest, um, which is the food that beavers eat. So beavers are vegetarians that eat trees and they're basically forest farmers and they farm their forest by harvesting water to irrigate their forests to get at it. So they're really smart and they're really strategic. And all of those benefits of what happens when beavers begin to slow the flow and, and capture excess stormwater runoff and reconnect water to its floodplains and recharge the groundwater. And uh, that water that's stored can be released longer through the dry season, which helps support perennial flows and fish and frogs and other aquatic life forms and the vegetation all benefit from that. The beaver wetlands can turn into peat bogs, which is carbon sequestration. So they actually can mitigate and sequester atmospheric CO2 while they're also providing an adaptation resiliency expression by holding more water on the landscape. Um, they 
manage these systems themselves. They teach their children how to do it. Um, they've got a great education system. Um, they fix things. They tend to things. Um, they do it cheaper and better than we do because they do it for free. And so we just have to learn how to coexist non-lethally beaver, recognize they're native to most of California, almost the entire state, except for the bulk of the Mojave Desert. Um, and see that in many of our watersheds where we're facing dry stream beds and water scarcity and lack of, of recharge, or we're trying to recover endangered salmon or willow flycatchers, we're spending all kinds of money on that. Why not partner with beaver in those appropriate locations in those stream systems, especially in the lower gradient systems, which is a small percentage of California surface area. Beaver don't inhabit the whole state. They have to live in the rivers and rivers don't represent that much of the bulk of the state. They're really high value places though for life and, and such. And to, we kill thousands and thousands of beavers in California because uh, cities and agriculture get mad at them for the things beaver do, which may increase some flooding or cut down some prized trees. And we have a whole bunch of tools in the toolbox of non-lethal coexistence with beavers, different ways to protect trees if need be, different ways to manage a beaver dam so that you can regulate the height of the water behind the beaver dam with a thing we call a flow control device. It's a simple plastic pipe with some metal T-posts and some wire caging. Um, and you can set the elevation of a pond at whatever elevation you want so you can reduce inundation or flooding but you can also still allow the beavers to have a pond and still exist and do what beavers do. So there's there's win-win situations to work with beavers if we as society wish to recognize them as potentially a beneficial tool in the toolbox as a native species, as a life form that has an intrinsic right to exist anyway, besides the fact that it can benefit human settlement. It doesn't have to be utilitarian. I just honor beaver as an intrinsic life form. I don't know the hubris of humanity to think that we can allow, have, we have the right to kill off anybody else we want is, is a little bit of human supremacy arrogance, in my humble opinion. Um, and it's gotten us into a state where, yeah, we're in the middle of a big extinction crisis with a whole bunch of other life forms. And we're kind of, <laughs> a whole bunch of hominids are up on the chopping block for a question as well. So I, I feel like we collaborating with, say in this case, beaver, other life forms, in integrated holistic ways is just part of a regenerative toolkit platform that both can heal watersheds, but I think it can also heal um, our own relationship and our own souls and our own spirit. Yes. And it, it's it's as much spiritual work of being a part of the system as it is, uh, you know, I need to get X gallons for my own farm or my own home or my own thing. Right. We can reframe or in some places reestablish our relationship with the beaver. We can work with them as a resource, essentially, as a tool or a partner to keep more water on the land and in the ground. You know, where I grew up, you know, had beavers weren't around. And so they're kind of this novelty animal. But in places where there are beaver, there is this stigma um, where beavers are seen as a pest. But, you know, we can shift that perception. The question is just how, because there's only really a small minority of people talking about this right now. Well, there was a, a short film on beers that debuted ahead of the Kiss the Ground drive-in premiere in Santa Barbara this summer. I didn't get to see it, but I know some of the folks behind it. And it's a small minority of people who are talking about it 
and putting in the pilot projects and these sorts of things. And also it's like even talking about beavers, there's, there's so much to be done before we get to the point of even reintroducing uh, the beaver to the watershed. But how do we get to that tipping point where we get everyone even thinking about an idea like this? I think it's kind of like what the old speaker of the house, Tip O'Neill said years ago, basically that all politics are local and even more so all water is local, localized California waters and all beaver are local. And so I think at some level, while there's federal and state policies that can support us, there's regulation frameworks and incentives. At some point, it's about community organizing. It's about local organizing. It's about what I call the basins of relations and being in right relation with everyone we share our basin with and our neighbors, human and otherwise. And if in your watershed, there are really good places where beaver could do really good things, then we collaborate with those folks to either support them if they like the beaver or support them in learning to like the beaver and live with the beaver and help them out. Um, but again, those are going to be really special places where we can do upland land management to increase infiltration of stormwater. There are better places for that than others. Some soils infiltrate water, some soils don't. Mapping that out. Where forest management for, for water yield, for limbing, for thinning, for fire, for resiliency, for great gray owl habitat, specific spaces, where oak woodlands are, where grasslands are, where chaparral is. So I think it, it requires of us to become much more nuanced and engaged in the, the uniqueness of each of our home watersheds and what that portfolio looks like in Southern California versus a foothill or western Sierra Slope mountain community or a coastal uh, chaparral or Pacific Northwest rainforest community in Humboldt, Mendocino, Sonoma County, or a Joshua Tree community or the Modoc Plateau or the Central Valley or the Delta. California is just bafflingly diverse and really cool. And that's why so many of us love this place is you can go from the Mojave to the Redwoods of Del Norte County or to the Sierra Nevada, to Lake Tahoe, to Piro. Ah, it's amazing. So the toolkit, each region has its own set of tools that are appropriate and how you understand which where to apply each of those tools is really about, are you a craftsperson? who knows how to use tools and build quality with focus and good design? Or are you just out there beating everything because it all looks like a nail and all you got is a hammer? Right. So we've spoken a lot about a lot of different tools. Are, is there anything that we missed? Is there a tool that you think would be a valuable water management tool that we have in our toolkit that we didn't really touch on? I would love to see um, in people's homes that when homes are built, new homes, all new homes, and if we could retrofit it, where there's an actual dashboard in a really central place, like right in your kitchen. And when you turn the water on, it starts spinning. Or when you turn the gas on, or when you turn the electricity on, imagine driving your car, but not having a fuel gauge. And yet we drive our homes, but we have no idea of fuel gauge. We don't know how much we're using, when we're using. If I turn on all the lights, is that like putting the pedal to the metal? Am I? And so I think making consumption transparent because if you can't measure it and see it, you can't manage it. So I would love for society in different ways to make our consumption more visible, more transparent, because then you have a feedback loop. It's often what was referred to as the Prius effect. Once people started getting Priuses and they had all those little bar charts and things and people started going, oh, well, and they want to have bragging rights about how many miles per gallon they gamed out of their Prius. So they started backing off. They started doing this. They started, you know, their regenerative braking and, and people started gaming efficiency because it is, it's, so how do you gamify in a, in a positive sense? 
How do you gamify? Maybe it's an app on your phone. How do we make that more uh, transparent? And I think that conservation and energy utilization, if people have feedback and it's, and it's real time, it's consequential, we'll, it helps people make better decisions. So I'd love to see that as a, as a different piece. And maybe that's a place where the technology folks who want to show up with their smart technology and some of the widgets and the app-based things, it's not my, I'm not in that, I mean, I'm not, that's not my skill set, but there may be an opportunity. So I think that's something that we often don't talk enough about. The meter's out there. Somebody checks it. You lift the lid. There's a black widow living in it. Nobody, <laughs> until you get a bill once a month, which is hard because now I already use the water. I mean, I could adjust at that point, but so I like that. And then I think much more rigorous education, um, K-12 and beyond in fourth grade in California schools and the science framework, water is, is top there. But I think ecological literacy education in our food system and the water system and the energy system, seeing how they're all connected, just um, more pragmatic, hands-on. So using all campuses as living laboratories and integrated school curriculum at all grade levels where there's project-based learning, multiple intelligences, integrated, hands-on, edible schoolyards, potable schoolyard, energy schoolyard, um, doing read and write arithmetic, your STEAM, all of the STEAM things with pragmatic, uh, experiential education um, to bring up the next generation of people who are actually fluent and connected with the idea of the economy, which is just oikosnomia, which is just household management. How do we manage our household in an economic sense of the origin of that word of economics, which isn't just about money. So bring the eco back into economy, into ecology. Um, and so that's the school system. I think making consumption transparent and educating rigorously, pragmatically, everybody um, of the next gen of the people inheriting the systems and have to figure out how to work, manage the ones we got and repair and renew them and regenerate them in the future is, and then there's just massive job security on not just green jobs, but rainbow jobs. Like why a restoration economy, a regenerative economy of people involved in, in all facets of regenerating it, which means maybe means we need some economic stimulus packages where we tax toxic behavior and we subsidize sustainable behavior and we reinvest our surplus into subsidizing sustainable. And if if your behavior is toxic, if it's polluting water, or the air, if it's degrading human spirit and it's extractive, you, the price of that doing that business should be really expensive on the front end because it's really expensive on the back end and you can't externalize the cost to future generations and extinction. We should tax that up front and disincentivize it and then subsidize regenerative and relational systems. Wow. Brock, thank you so much for this. All right, thank you. We'd like to acknowledge the Department of Water Resources and the Tuolumne County Resource Conservation District, as well as the residents of California whose support of Prop 84 made this podcast possible. Thanks to Ryan Evans for editing and mixing. Our theme music was done by Todd Hannigan. Thank you to Charles Upton, who recorded the original interview with Brock Dolman. Thank you for joining us on this episode of The Water Table.